Welcome to the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Little Way Farm and Homestead is a regenerative and educational farm in southeastern Indiana. Motivated by the Catholic faith, we strive to inspire, encourage, and support the development of homesteads and small-scale farms in faith and virtue. I'm Matthew. And I'm Carissa. We're excited for you to join us on the podcast. Ross and Dorothy McKnight of Backwater Foie Gras are an inspirational and pioneering Catholic couple. They have built a reputable farming business without a background in farming or homesteading. This was an exciting interview where we learned about foie gras, the McKnight's journey to farming, and manners in which the Catholic faith can be unpacked on the homestead. The McKnight's interview is one that echoes many themes in our own lives, that a lifestyle firstly inspired by the Catholic faith is good, that raising children on a homestead is beneficial, and that a life in pursuit of heaven is always worth living. We are inspired by this interview and not just about our newfound understanding of foie gras, but about the need for perseverance and continually striving to respond to God. I do want to alert listeners that you will hear some audio distortion from Carissa and me. Well, mostly me. I unintentionally turned the input on our microphones up just a bit too loud, and you will hear that during the interview. We take pride in producing a podcast that is not only engaging and inspiring, but that also sounds pleasant. So, please pardon this recording mishap. As always, we thank you for joining us on the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please consider leaving a positive rating and review wherever you might be listening. And lastly, we have exciting news coming up. To stay informed, consider joining our email newsletter, which will be linked in the show notes, or visit us at littlewayhomestead.com. Ross and Dorothy, thank you for joining us on the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. We are very excited for you all to be here and uh, have a. we're looking forward to a very fun and enjoyable conversation with you all. Very impressed with a lot of the work that you all do, and I'm excited to learn more about it. So thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good to be here. So we'd love if you guys could just start by telling us and explaining a little bit more of what you do. Sure. Well, we run a foie gras farm, which is perhaps a little off kilter for some people in the the farming world. There are only around six, five or six producers in the United States, uh, two of which are larger scale, more industrial producers. And then the rest of us are just, you know, very small scale. And I think mostly more traditional pasture-based operations. So producing foie gras is, uh, it's kind of a... It's an art in a way in that it requires a lot of individual attention to each duck and some some particularly refined processes in order to obtain the end result, which is the fattened liver of a duck in this case. And of course, we also use the whole duck carcass and it creates a really beautiful carcass, a really beautiful finished quality carcass because of that fattening process that we use. There are a lot of misconceptions about foie gras, but you know maybe we can get into that later if necessary. But we have we have five children currently. One or two of them help around the farm. The rest are still very young. Dorothy is running the household, educating the children while I'm out there uh, in the field or slaughtering ducks downstairs in our small processing plant. So, um. So, yeah. The foie gras, our foie gras business, our farm, that's how we make a living. But we do, I guess, quote unquote, homestead along with everything else. So we have like the old McDonald farm of the horse and the milk yes, cow and yeah. the sheep and the pigs and the, I, I can't keep track. What, what am I missing? We the have rabbits, rabbits. Yeah. Chickens. Chickens, right. I think that's. So we, you know, what we we try to incorporate all of those things mainly for our family, and we we produce our own meat. I don't know the last time that we purchased meat, but that's predominantly just for our own family's consumption. Mm-hmm. We raise pigs for our own family's consumption, although I do a couple of pigs a year for others. But anyway, that's kind of a thirty thousand foot view of of what we have going on here. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, so you do the home, a little homesteading and you do the farming as well with the foie gras. How did, how did this all start? Maybe what's the background look like on this? How did, did you all grow up homesteading or what, what's the background to get to this point? No, we did not grow up homesteading or farming at any level. Uh, we both grew up in somewhat suburban settings, although I had, I think, a little bit more woods to run around in, which was nice. Um, I enjoyed being outdoors a lot, dealing with you know creatures that I would find, things like that. But um, as far as, I guess, closer to the beginning of the farm and our how our interests sort of trended in this direction, I, like many in our generation, I have an autoimmune disease. And so I became a lot more interested in the food system, of course. And there's just like a very common story, uh, more interested in the food system and, and kind of what I was putting in my body and where it was coming from. And we started to do some very low level gardening and uh, I guess homesteading, keeping chickens, keeping rabbits on three quarters of an acre in our first little home. Meat chickens. Meat chickens. We did there as well. That's crazy that we did that. Mm-hmm. And so so I had, I started to develop this desire to actually be, you know, a farmer to, to produce good food for the community. But, you know, and I, I had made a proposal to a former employer of mine who actually runs an alligator ranch. I worked at an alligator ranch, but that's very, you know, Louisiana, I guess. Anyway, so it, he had a lot of unused acreage, but he wasn't interested in putting chickens on it because I, I think mainly because a lot of the the income for the alligator ranch is really around tourism. And so people being there and maybe he had fears about manure and the smell of chicken, whatever. But so that didn't work out. So, but it was kind of already on my mind that I wanted to start a farm. So I went into finance, uh, became a financial advisor. But at the beginning, uh, when I was hired, I told my, my employer, I told my boss who hired me that in three years, I wanted to start a farm. So uh, ended up being four years, but and three. and it, three it was three okay three and it's, calendar years and it started from a hospital bed really because I had to end up getting a total colectomy and so I and I just kind of you know that gives you a, an opportunity to reflect on life and I was like you know what like what's the point of holding off any longer so. Uh, him saying it started from a hospital bed. I, we did talk a lot about the farm, like the future farm from the hospital bed. But I don't know if you remember, but we already had ducks at our house while he was in the hospital. Sorry, the um, drugs do a number on but your memory. Yeah, I, I, we often have <laughs> moments where I'm anesthesia. like, actually, it was this, Ross. Or do you remember that this happened? Yeah, all the general but, anesthesia, yeah. man. It, it was like a month, does a, before, number on you. a month before that big surgery. We did. Anyway. We did get ducks. And actually, we produced our first mm-hmm. really beautiful foie gras on three our three-quarter acre lot. Um, while you had an ostomy While bag. I had an ostomy <laughs> bag, which is, you know, fun. And uh, it was 20 ducks. 20 ducks, some really beautiful foie gras. I was really amazed. And so once we knew we could do it, then we we just kind of went for it. Well, I love this headline already from alligator ranch to foie gras, somewhere or to hospital foie gras, somewhere in there. And it's, it's incredibly interesting. What we find more and more is, while yes, there's these common themes and these common conversations often around food, there are an enormous amount of variety in in the individual stories that lead someone to the conviction that they want to move away from the comforts of city life or of modern uh, aesthetics into a life that is often particularly difficult uh, or at least seems a lot uh, very difficult to actually go through. For example, right now we're heading into winter and it is December and it's raining in about 40 degrees outside and it's very uncomfortable, but still we have to take care of the animals and go outside and take care of things that need to be done around the farm and the homestead. What conviction do you think people are experiencing right now, or maybe even yourselves or, or folks like us, that they are willing to push into this lifestyle in the in the current world? I think it's sort of a, a very primal understanding that it's objectively good. And when it's so difficult to, I think, make that determination living in the modern world, with all the trappings and conveniences of, of the post-industrial era. When you look at farming and you, you, it's just kind of self-evidently good. And that can of course take this sort of fa- uh, fantastical or sort of idyllic um, 
shape in one's mind so that, you know, I know for us going into it, we were just, it was all this energy and all this excitement, of course, but it is, you know, now that we're in what we started the farm 2019, we're in 2023, that I think that whole perspective is now so nuanced and it's, it changes a lot because as you well know, there's so much hardship that is character forming, but yeah, I think it's just that innate sense that, that it's good. And Genesis of course is a pretty good example because God basically said, Hey, go farm. It is interesting. I think often I was sitting outside yesterday, I think it was, and I was looking around at a whole bunch of the chickens as I was feeding them some, some grains. And I thought, wow, you know, we are, we have the opportunity to steward this creation and this creation is beautiful and it's amazing to be included in that. It makes me think of, you know, when you have someone that you really respect and they, they grant you care of something that they, you know, they love or they respect and how much pride you take in returning that good back to them in a way that is honorable. And uh, it just makes me reflect and think often about it. It's really interesting. I do want to turn just a little bit, though, on this foie gras. Am I saying that correctly? A foie. So think like F-W-A-H. Foie. <laughs> foie yeah. gras. Gras. Obviously, you mentioned it at the very beginning. Sometimes there's visceral reactions to foie gras. How, one, how do you get to that as your specialty meat uh, that you are now known for? Maybe talk a little bit about the history of it or why people should or should not have that visceral reaction to it. Well, and just explain what is foie gras. Sure. So the foie gras is the fat and liver of a duck or goose. Predominantly today, duck is used. And about 90% of foie gras production comes from the moulard duck, which is which just means mule in French, really. And it's a sterile hybrid cross between a Pekin duck and a Muscovy drake, if I have that right. I always get it confused, whether it's the female or male. But anyway, so it's, it's a moulard. Uh, we do not use moulard because um, we brought them down once and they just really struggled uh, even in... Um, well, if they struggle in our warmer temperatures of spring that's a problem because we of course need to operate until temperatures start to get prohibitive which is you know about consistently around 75 degrees once once we get up there uh so the, what we use is the muscovy duck which is actually a tropical bird but it still has the ability to uh store fat in the liver and they really thrive here well for the most part and they do well with <laughs> with gavage uh, and they produce probably the best meat uh, as far as waterfowl is concerned that one has ever tasted. But the process uh, is thousands of years old. It's probably almost as old as human existence itself. We have, uh, you know, examples from Egyptian hieroglyphs of, of foie gras hap uh, production happening with geese using hollow reeds and pellets of grain that have been formed to drop down the reeds into their, their esophagi or their crop. Um, and that's the thing is it's sort of like any other form of animal agriculture is sort of the recognition of the, the native abilities of an animal to do X, Y, or Z. So if you grain finish, for instance, a cow, it's going to have more fat content and cows do naturally eat grain, but guess what? They don't eat as much grain in their natural habitat as we give them. However, they're capable of digesting it, right? Um, they'll eat seed heads, for instance, right out in the field, but they're not going to get like a giant mound of seed heads. We give that to them. Uh, and so similarly with foie gras, uh, we do a very similar process. It's just that it's now tailored to the physiology, the biology of the waterfowl. Uh, and they have esophagi that are keratinous and flexible and stretchy. They don't have nerve endings in them. Um, they don't have a gag reflex. And so all of, all of these ideas, you know, that really in North America, we just get our only exposure to foie gras is really PETA sent like putting terrible photographs out there, which I don't know where they get them, but, um, wherever they get them, it's, it's not a happy place. So you can do it badly, just like you can do any form of agricultural agriculture badly, such as feedlots, you know, um, industrial feedlots, but you can also do it well. And so, we should judge it, I think, by the, 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 when it's done well, the, the highest common denominator rather than the lowest common denominator. And so anyway, it's not a harm to the duck. It's in accord with its nature. We're just giving it more grain to digest than it would otherwise be able to get. But they do gorge themselves 
in the winter prior to migration. So that's where foie gras comes from is if you're a hunter, you shoot a duck just as it's taken off to migrate, you open it up, you might find a golden liver in there. Is that something that you grew up on? I'm, I'm trying to think of this though, too, because I'm not certain that I've ever been exposed to that as a potential culinary option, at least through my upbringing or, or where we live. To be clear, where we live is in southeastern Indi- Indiana, in a very rural uh, part of the country. I suspect there are lots of ducks around where we live based on maybe migratory patterns, but we don't have a lot of swamplands and, and things like that where they necessarily would congregate. So maybe that's a part of it. But how did that how did that end up your specialty meat? That's it's really interesting. So we did not grow up with this at all. No, at all. Ross said we started the farm in 2019. So 2018, we became very fast, very close friends with some friends of ours that had moved from France to Louisiana. And uh, well, the wife was from France. The husband had been in France for like 10 years. He was American. So they moved to Louisiana and They're the ones that introduced us to foie gras. At the time that we met them, Ross had been in the finance world and he was doing well, but he was gradually getting more and more unhappy and he was away from the home a lot. And he still still had that goal of farming, but we weren't really necessarily sure what we wanted to focus on. So they're the ones that introduced us to foie gras at first. And that kind of planted the seed months later, I don't know, maybe nine, 10 months later, we were like, okay, I think we should do this. (laughs) Um, But Ross also has, do you want to talk about the French background? Okay. So yeah, yeah, so Louisiana is, uh, I don't know how many people sort of have a comprehensive idea of Louisiana and the history, and we're not going to go through that because that'll take forever. But uh, Louisiana was, you know, a, a French outpost for a long time, um, and Louisiana really became what it was and remained and developed into what it was prior to and during the development of the United States, and really was something completely separate um, in so many ways, culturally, linguistically, religiously, right? It was Catholic, it was predominantly French-speaking, um, and obviously the culinary traditions are really well-developed and very strong and and we care a lot about food um and so and i care a lot about that heritage because like so many other cultural revolutions in the world our language was eradicated it was taken from us in a in a political you know more top-down way where it was like okay we're going to take away opportunities from you if you don't speak english and children were abused in the schools for speaking french and punished and mocked, and there's lots of terrible stories. But, and, and it's just this sort of the idea of the great cultural leveling, right? In order to sort of take advantage and, of course, then economically exploit an area. So, so that's sad. But what's beautiful is that uh, the culinary tradition still exists, and I think it's probably the most Catholic place in North America. And, but I think food is really an expression of the joie de vivre that we have, the love of life that comes from, that really comes from the faith, the, the knowledge of the goodness of God and of his love for us and of the beautiful things that he creates. And of course, Louisiana is called the sportsman's paradise. We have alligators, you know, we have all these, these migratory waterfowl. We have deer. We have, if you want to go fishing or hunting, this is one of the places that's a destination in the world. And with that is sort of nature's pantry. You know, and so nature's pantry sort of being what the Acadians, when they came down, you know, they looked around, they said, okay, what are we going to do? Well, we, we, we come from this French tradition, and but this is the pantry that we have to work with now, which is quite different. And so a lot of beautiful things have come out of that. And I saw foie gras as sort of restoring this great patrimony of our French heritage to the to Louisiana, to my home, to really my my native land, my motherland, kind of giving this this thing that belongs to us, I think, by our birthright back to us and then doing something for the the culture in that way. So I have a, I have a great attachment to those things, if that makes any sense. Well, it does. And one of the things that is continuing to be impressed on me is the relationship between that can be understood between agriculture, local cuisine, and the Catholic faith. And the way that a lot of these customs evolve over time and can even be used as a way of helping to express the truths of the faith. You all are Catholic and you produce a, a very unique specialty 
uh, meet, at least in the context of the United States. Do you find that it's easy to connect the Catholic faith with the way maybe you raise your children and the agricultural production between the homesteading and the farm? Yeah, you know, it's it. I know I remember some early conversations with the children when they were just kind of like observing slaughter, right? And um, and how the idea of how something must die so that you must live is, uh, of course, throughout the imagery and the symbolism and just the very reality of of the faith, right? Every day, something must die so that you may live. And in the same sense, the the reenactment of Calvary happens every day. And so anyway, yeah, those things are certainly flushed throughout the lifestyle. And also, I think it's the, the, I mean, just the idea of the domestic church and the fact that with farming and homesteading, you're necessarily around each other all the time. And so you have to consistently deal with each other's faults and each other's failings, along with the good things that occur, but uh, the sense of duty, right? So that everyone has a duty in the family and on the farm, uh, especially my son. And so, you know, if it's not done, well, there are real world consequences (laughs) that happen. Um, And so instruction about virtue, um, obviously, is is something that's really, I guess, just very well conducted by the environment in which we live now, where, yeah, there are things that have to be done. And if they're not done, there's serious consequences. Like we can't have breakfast because the eggs are, you know, aren't here, you know, and it's getting late in the day or, you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, So things like that. And then just, you know, obviously the things that they do well, I think, there's there's not just like oh you drew a good picture that's great um but it it is great i mean sure but wow like you you actually accomplished something that in a very real way affected the family in a positive way and sustained us in some of our needs and the children get to participate in that and i think there's not really a good replacement for that in in the more um conventional lifestyle so hey there We hope the first half of this interview has been edifying to you. We will get right back to the second half, where we will hear more about homesteading and the Catholic faith. But before that, we did want to encourage anyone listening who might be considering moving to land or buying property to check out Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life is a real estate brokerage with over 1,400 pro-life real estate agents worldwide. They have completed over 10,000 real estate transactions, and they report 65% of their revenue goes to a pro-life or Catholic apostolate. You can quickly find an agent near you through their website at realestateforlife.org. And if you let them know that you learned about Real Estate for Life from Little Way Farm and Homestead, that helps support our family in continuing the work of Little Way Farm and Homestead. Now, back to the episode. Did you have children prior to beginning the farm? We did, yeah. Were you able to kind of see a distinction between those who were born maybe after you started the farm and the agriculture production was already going versus before? And I'll say for us, I, I, we definitely did. We started our farm after our firstborn. I believe it was just the firstborn. I think the others were born around the farm. No, I, I apologize. T- first two. And so I found that even things like confidence and dexterity and their willingness to participate in the farm, even at a younger age, has been remarkably impacted by being around livestock and animals and being welcomed into the agriculture activities. There was definitely a difference. So when we started, um, we had three children. They were like, I don't know, probably five. They were five, three, and one. So still very, very young in that the, like, the first two kind of remember what their life was like beforehand. But now but they just immediately started thriving. It was, it's, it's been really beautiful to see. But since then, we've had two more children, and especially the toddler, he's going to turn three in February. He's just been, he's really been thriving because he doesn't know anything different. He's and that's the farm been, baby. He was born upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, no, not him, but the, the little baby was born upstairs. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, General it's, anesthesia. Been, it's been really beautiful to see. They, they've just, they really thrived. Versus beforehand, we were on an acre, but, you know, we spent most of our time inside. Ross was gone a lot. We didn't really do too much outside. That was other than, you know, normal kid stuff playing outside, maybe trying to grow some vegetables. But 
they it, it's really um broadened their imagination and they there's plenty for them to do here <laughs> i think so but i i, I think it's kind of like what i think you're getting at ross it's it's that the activities are productive and not that they necessarily have to work in the same way that we may have to work, but that they see the consequences of their actions. Maybe that's not even the right way of saying it. They can see the results of their activities, even their, their actual play and, and what they, what they do just for fun and entertainment. Their imaginations are flourishing. They're jumping off of trees and climbing around and running after animals and having fun and understanding all at the same time, the limits of what they're, they physically can do and also the potential consequences that can uh, you know come if they don't do what they're supposed to do so we found that it's a it's not just a good place to be to help teach children it seems to be a very natural educational experience for children and it's really easy to teach them about the faith all at the same time and so that's a huge reward and a, and a blessing i think to us and a privilege for certain agreed one one thing i want to pivot just a little bit one thing that a lot of people find very difficult is one distinguishing between a homesteading lifestyle and farming as a actual venture to create an income. How did you all draw that line and make that decision to actually proceed in farming as opposed to just homesteading? You know, I think it was just, I, I had a background obviously. And so in the world of personal financial services, which I'll say I'm happy to be out of, you must build your own book of business. And so there is, you, you must learn to be an entrepreneur and you must apply all the aspects of entrepreneurship and marketing and all of those things in order to be able to build a business. Because at the end of the day, you have to sell yourself or a product or service, uh, predominantly in this case, products and services in order to make a living. And so I, I think I had a certain degree of confidence that I could build a business that I could sell the product, you know, that, that we could make that work. And I also think that it's, un, it's sort of unfortunately necessary if you want to live on a farm and you don't want to leave the farm, <laughs> then you must make it produce something that generates an income. It must, it must create a marketable product, which isn't, I'll say, I'll be the first one to say that's not ideal. That's this is something. God bless you. Um, this is something born out of the modern era, really, because we don't get to enjoy sort of the community of and and just the the generally. Um, I think. Oh man, more human lifestyle of just subsistence farming, and so so anyway. So I, I guess it's a product of of our current economic environment that we need to generate an income from our farm. We must, we must generate cash flow that is to pay bills. Oh dear. All these things are very exhausting for me to talk about. I'm sorry. But I, like, I, I just, I kind of, I, it, it drives me nuts sort of in a sense that, that it's necessary. At the same time, I love very much producing foie gras because it is, it requires so much of me. It requires virtue I don't really have. It requires a lot of skill and a lot of attention to detail and sort of an indefatigable attention to detail every day. And that I very much, like you mentioned, see the real world results of if I don't pay especially close attention to everything that I'm doing. So we love it very much while at the same time recognizing that this isn't this isn't the ideal structure of society. You know, we're not in Christendom anymore. What we're trying to do is approximate the lifestyle of someone who lived in Christendom. But right now, we can only approximate it because we haven't retaken the social order. We haven't uh, reconquered our holy Catholic empires. No, it's a it's an important distinction, and I think that there is a very strong conversation to be had here. I think of it from time to time as well. The distinction between you know subsistence based lifestyles solely versus the need to make an income because we live amongst a society that nearly demands that we provide money to the society, whether we you know want to or or otherwise. But in that, 
you know, there is the, the this idea, I think, that we can expand on where we take little steps each day to better create a world that we want our children, our, our grandchildren to live in and, and so on and so forth uh, generationally. And the homesteading portion of it, I think, really helps to communicate that. And I've found that it's particularly challenging and humbling to myself as I continue to dive into it and realize uh, all the, the opportunity for virtue that I have to grow in and that a lot of us have to grow in. I do wonder at times if maybe that's partly why we are so drawn to this lifestyle of working with our hands and manual labor and human scale labor, because it does expose these things that we know we need to work on spiritually, and it helps to encourage us to truthfully grow uh, in virtue and be open to receiving God's graces. That being said, a lot of people are looking to figure out how to farm, and they are Catholic, and they want to know, how do I get started with What's a good idea? What, how do I make sure that I don't uh, sink myself economically? How do I make sure my relationship between uh, husband and wife flourishes and doesn't become uh, impacted negatively because of the challenges in creating a business that is a farm? What advice or insights do you all have as a couple that is, uh, from at least what we can see, successful in creating a market and a marketable product and pushing into that as a way of providing for your family? I'd say that the hardships and the difficulties and the burdens are inevitable, but that they are also good because farming is a, is a very productive form of penance, I think. And I, I mean, I, my, my perception of my wife, Dorothy, as... Like I experience pretty intense hardships with just the workloads some days and the things that must get done one way or another, no matter what, especially following an illness, for instance, because when you're sick on the farm, as you guys, I'm sure you all know very well, man, it's still got to get done and it's the worst. (laughs) And, um, And then not only that, but for instance, we had harvest coming up and we all got the flu. And so the harvest got pushed back. And at the same time, I had just slaughtered a pig for someone and it was in the cooler and <laughs> and we all had the flu. And so it's like, man, OK, uh, all this stuff is now going to pile right on top of uh, itself. You know, all the ducks, the pig, everything. And that's exactly what happened. And so the following week after being miserable, sick was miserable with the workload. But I think we've developed a great deal of empathy for each other and also because we, because we're Catholic, you know, it's, it's easier to connect these things to the spiritual life and to understand that God, God allows all of our sufferings, right? He permits them and his permissive will, he allows all of our sufferings, but he only ever allows them for our good. And so, you know, while I am not uh, an example of someone who always keeps that front of mind, that is ultimately the reality. That's the truth. And so if, if you can uh, strive to keep that front of mind, then obviously there's some solace there. Even when you're suffering terribly, maybe you have the flu and you're doing gavage. Like I was, you know, still had to go fatten the ducks morning and night. And so that's, I think, very productive spiritually because then you're like, oh, I'm, I'm part of the economy. Of, God wants me to be part of the economy of salvation in some way. And he suffered, right? Um, and meditation on the passion and on the... Uh, on the works of our Lord, the sufferings of our Lord, I think is extremely profound and beneficial, especially for small scale farmers, because man, is it by the sweat of your brow that you bring forth food from the earth. So anyway, that's my brief response. And I think I got off topic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say a couple things. When we first started our farm, Ross was like the first year, year and a half, Ross was still recovering from his surgeries and then he had to have more surgeries. And so I I had to help out a lot on the farm and I, I did really enjoy it for the most part. It was a lot, but after a while, when he was ready to step up, I think I, I took so much pride in it that I think in the beginning, I, it was hard for me to let go of it. But during that, time period, things weren't quite as balanced, you know, because I was outside and then the household was suffering. But the more I started like letting go of that and let him take the lead again, and then focusing on the household, that's been really beautiful. So like, I would say, to preface this, I listened to your 
interview with the Sheards like a few days ago. And I really loved what Lauren was saying about how you really have to focus on the family first, not the homestead. So if your family, if the domestic church is disordered or in chaos or just not not right, not settled, then everything else is going to be, is going to reflect that. So it's been, it's been really, we've constantly been changing and growing and developing, but focusing on my primary role is taking care of the children in the household and, and his is doing all the work, not all the work, but focusing on running the business and running the farm. That's been really beautiful. I do have a milk cow She's currently dry right now. So it's been nice having the break, not milking her. But yeah, I'd say focus on the family first. Focus on your roles within the family and and then go from there. Um, make sure that is ordered. And then I'd also say a lot of people who get really excited about homesteading in the beginning, they feel like they need to do get all of the things and all the animals all at once. We have a front of Go ours. lean. <laughs> it's kind of like yeah, that. Go very lean. And yeah. yeah, don't do that. Definitely start slowly and then work from there. So yeah, and like foie, I, you can produce foie gras. That's one mm-hmm. thing you could do. But the other the other things are, is just really like find something, you know, just kind of look at your market, do a market survey, right? And you don't have to do that. You don't like literally have to do a survey, but just look at what's in demand. Like, what do you want to eat that you can't get, for instance? That's one way to do it. You could also go and talk to chefs and be like, hey, guys, like, what is it that you don't have access to locally, but what you want? And you can just let them lead you into your your business model. Um, and then and then once you get one thing running that you find is successful, do it in such a way that it's flawless. And then after that, you can start to scale it. And then and didn't just run lean. You know, I think the goal of farming to make money for Catholics is really to build the homestead upon that. And y'all might share that idea, which is really like, okay, I sell, I really only sell produce, I really only sell meat so that I can eat it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and that's kind of how I feel is I really only do foie gras so that I can be here. And so that I can eat bacon and that I grew, you know, and so that I can um, eat vegetables that I grew and so that I can, you know, have this family lifestyle so that we can educate our children together so that they can be around so that they can learn how to work and how to how that they can develop character, develop virtue, grow in the faith. That is why we're doing this. But I, I farm so that that occurs. So actually, it may be that someone's not able to farm in order to make those other things occur. But I think it, it can be rather simple. It's just it's just a look at the market, what is desired and what is not produced, and then go and do that. That's one way to do it. The other thing is to do the way, go the way I, I went, which is this is a niche. You know, very few people produce it. I know that I can find a market for it and I want to do it. But so there are a couple of ways to go about it. If you, if you have the time and investment and the type of property and climate, you know, you could do something like white truffles or black truffles because those things are going to be in demand and, you know, you might be shipping them or whatever, but you can look at what's in demand across the country. Then you could do that. Or you could look at what's in demand in your local community and then let that tell you how to farm. Anyway, sorry, that was very long. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's wonderful. It's, it's really neat. And, you know, one thing that came up, it has come up in the conversation thus far is, you know, this idea of the challenging nature of homesteading. And I think that's evident through farming as well. One thing that concerns me often is I think people look at homesteading only from what they see online, which is the best uh, sides of it, the best pictures, the cleanest uh, videography. And what they don't see is what's literally behind the camera often, which is a person who's struggling to keep up or maintain, or they've overdone it. They've taken on way too many animals or you could be like us and you're chasing cattle because you don't have good fencing in sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How do you think what uh, you commented a little bit on it already, but I mean, I think this is something that comes up often because people are trying to balance the idea of farming and homesteading and maybe getting lost a little bit in between the two and not fully committing to either or not doing either as well as they could if they really focus on doing one or the other. You mentioned stay lean. What other things in the very beginning might be helpful to someone who just says, look, 
we would like to produce a little bit to offset some of our costs, maybe embrace that subsistence farming lifestyle. But we really just want to provide for our family and make sure that our family unit and our family society is growing in virtue, responding appropriately to the faith, moving towards heaven, and using this lifestyle as a way of helping us in those things. Um, man, it's gonna help you in those ways if you allow it. I think it's very natural. Um, you might have the same experience, but I think one of the most difficult periods of, of our business was last season following, following our most successful season, we lost 300 ducks. And for us losing 300 ducks is losing between forty and fifty thousand dollars in opportunity cost because of the type of product that we produce, and the worst part of it, in a sense, was that we were doing something that, on its face, objectively would be considered good and reasonable. So what we did was we invested in uh, changing our feed program to a non-GMO and a specifically duck-formulated feed. So we were. Just to clarify, we were already non-GMO, but we switched to a different. We switched to a different supplier, provider, provider. Um, because we wanted the best mm-hmm. feed for our ducks that we could get, and and we were having trucks come here and drop off super sacks, and it was this whole ordeal every month to get our feed. But we wanted to, of course, provide. Uh, we're just trying to produce the best product that we can, right? So, so what ended up happening is after. At least, at least from what we've observed in all of the deduction that we can do, we finally determined that the cause of the death of our ducks was actually that feed that we had switched to, that that we were paying more for, that was you know objectively supposed to be superior, right? That was specifically formulated for ducks because we'd been using chick grower, but not for muscovies. <laughs> yeah, maybe not for muscovies. Whatever it was, I think I think there's a problem in in general with the infrastructure as far as non-GMO and organic feed and. And it's just not where conventional feed is. So anyway, so maybe it was arriving moldy, old, right? Deteriorating, um, buggy, it would arrive buggy. Uh, So, so anyway, so that was like this, this massive kick in the teeth, right? It was like, okay, you just had a successful season. And then it's kind of like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, (laughs) But, uh, but you know, this, this was, this was seemed like a very reasonable decision. So we, um, so I think, man, it was just the hardest thing to watch. You know, it's like you you kind of go after the regenerative ideal and and you're trying to do all of the insert all of those elements that make it really, really desirable, you know, really trying to up your game and develop your craft and produce the best possible product, like I mentioned, and do it the right way. And then you literally just get like, just completely stomped on trying to do that. Like, like that completely goes crazy. You know, it goes completely South. Everything's flipped on its head. Uh, and I felt like it seemed like we were going to lose the business and we even had an employee at the time. So it was really crazy. But it, so if you don't have, obviously you must have the firm foundation of the faith in order to actually make sense of these things and say, okay, like this suffering is meaningful. Like this terrible thing that happened while I was doing, well, it seemed to me that I was doing my best to behave virtuously, to make good decisions. It completely backfired <laughs> and um, and it shouldn't have. There's no reason why it should have backfired. And yet it did. And so how does one make sense of that when, when everything one plus one should equal two and it ends up being like, you know, negative 40,000. Well, what does that mean? What do you, how do you then proceed from there? And so that's one of the ways in which this life, because it is difficult and because you, you surrender so much control, you do not have control over coyotes, over uh, the weather, over major temperature shifts that kill animals, over uh, ra- crazy torrential downpours. You don't have control. You surrender it all. And that's sort of integral to the spiritual life as well. You do not have control. You must surrender it all. And that complete abandonment and dependence is in fact, right, becoming the child that enters the kingdom of heaven. And so even in these really difficult scenarios, 
that is actually God bringing you to, yeah, to that next level spiritually so that you can come closer to him by stripping you of all the things that you're attached to. So anyway, I think it's a natural process. It's, it's you start farming, you start homesteading it, and you might have rose-colored glasses on like we did, but it's going to transform you if you allow it to, and if you are looking at everything through the eyes of faith. I think that's one of the greatest things about a life that is connected to the productive land from where your food comes from, where your labor is employed, is that the connection between the faith and the the homesteading and the farming activities are so simple to understand. And it practically puts you in a position to be humbled and to constantly be reminded of our need for grace and to, de- to develop in holiness. Uh, I appreciate you all sharing that. That's it's, it's phenomenal insights. It's, it's great all around. We're still, <laughs> we still feel very unqualified to be having this conversation. It's, but thank you for having us. <laughs> well, I've got one more before we head out here. A lot of conversation is had around the idea of developing that Catholic culture in the home. And I find that cuisine and local agriculture production is one great way of, of helping to inspire or bring Catholic culture into the home as well. What insights or practices do you all have that help to support the development of Catholic culture in your own home and on the homestead? Oh man, liturgical year is so great. And it in fact, it's very naturally. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Looking at the old calendar, right? The traditional calendar, liturgical calendars, like, like this makes so, this, this kind of is so integral to the agrarian life. You look at it's, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's like one thing leads to the next, right? You look at Lent and that's when you're running out of cured meat and stored things that you've, you've saved up for the winter. You're running out of those things. So of course Lent is natural, right? You just start fasting like, okay, great. Um, and then, you know, November 11th comes around, it's Martinmas and, and you slaughter the goose and it's like, well, you know what? It's about time to slaughter a goose. It's getting cold. They're probably, you know, you could have fattened them up to this point. Um, same thing with harvesting in general in the fall and early winter. It just makes so much sense. And that's when, you know, the great feast of Christmas and Epiphany and you know, all those things happen. So liturgical year is and farming are so woven together. And I think that, again, ties back to Genesis, where God literally told us as our first vocation, to, our primary vocation, you know, to go and to tend and to keep or to till and to keep the, the earth. And so it's, it just makes perfect sense that it would tie in with every aspect of the liturgical year. And so that's very natural to talk about the talk to uh, the children about. Um, and of course, that's kind of how things ebb and flow on the homestead anyway. So, you know, it's Christmas and guess what? I've got foie gras and I've got fattened ducks. We're definitely going to do some of that stuff, you know, for the Christmas meal um, or for Christmas or, or as an hors d'oeuvre. And the same thing with Easter. We've got some lambs that are, they're ready to be slaughtered now. So, and uh, we're coming up on Advent. Um, so, and it, and also I think with Advent, you kind of look at, sort of it's a time of preparation in the church and for our souls but you can also think about it man it's kind of a time of preparation for the long winter where we have all these things to do but they're not quite done yet and we can't just necessarily sit down and rest quite yet of course foie gras season continues throughout the winter so you don't get to rest anyway but um i guess for for farming in general for the agrarian life in general you have a lot of preparation to do with harvest and with prep uh, with storing and preserving food, if you're trying to do all those things traditionally, right? Trying to really, really get a hold of what what life should be like. So it's a time of preparation in that sense as well. So anyway, I, I think, yeah, the, like I've said before, those things can be very natural if you allow them to be natural. Just like the, the liturgical year is gonna kind of like reflect the life you're living and then your life is gonna reflect the liturgical year and it, and it allows you to synthesize those things and kind of understand why the church and her wisdom and our Lord and God and his omniscience made the church and made the calendar the way that it is. And it's really beautiful. It's like sort of like, it's impossible not to see God, so. I would say, I don't know what you do in terms of liturgical living, Carissa, but I know online there's there's a wealth of information for Catholic homeschooling families on like these are certain crafts you can do or like different things you can make. I'm not the kind of mom that's prepared that way. That's just not me. <laughs> I try sometimes, but that's not me. But, you know, everybody has to eat. 
And a really big component component of the homestead is the kitchen. And really going back to traditional cooking and um, even going back to the meals that like are traditional to Louisiana, that's just natural. We all eat. And the kids know what's on their plate. They know where it came from, either from us or from the farmer's market. And it just, it comes very naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're constantly making things from the homestead for feast days or, and then talking about the feast days. So um, it really does come naturally when what's on your plate is something that you've produced and it, it's, you know, it's Advent. Mm -hmm. Um, So you got to eat. So yeah, the kitchen is the great sort of like synthesizer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it does seem that way. And the more that we embrace the homesteading lifestyle and and the farming work, the more I think that we find that to be the case as well. And it it really, a, a lot of things come together in the kitchen and it's a great place to, to really I want to say demonstrate, but I really almost show off the beauty of the Catholic faith yeah. uh, in the home as well. So, well, this was wonderful. We want to say, just really say thank you for, for both taking time out of your day to be here. This was wonderful uh, to have the conversation and we look forward to continuing to follow along with your farm and hopefully one day uh, trying some foie gras. Mm-hmm. I have not had it before. Yeah. Well, you can always come down for the class in January. <laughs> Um, hey, that, that's a great point. Let's do that real quick too. What what's coming up? What's on the radar? What can people look forward to? How can they find you? Sure. So, the, like I mentioned, the class in January. This is the first uh, foie gras class that we're doing. We're going to partner with Brandon Sheard for it. He's going to come down co-host the class. So we'll be doing it together. It'll be very hands-on. I'll actually be showing people how to perform gavage. We'll go through harvest. We'll go through harvesting the foie gras itself, breaking down the ducks, cookery as well. Um, and that's a couple days, January nineteenth, twentieth. And you can find uh, the registration on our website, backwaterduckfarm.com or backwaterfagra.com. We're also on Instagram where we, you know, mostly follow suit and post pretty things. But, but yeah, you've just learned about some of the catastrophes here. So there you go. Uh, and then, of course, we've, we've got the whole Facebook thing going. Um, but, yeah, that's how you can follow along. We've got a newsletter. If you want to follow our newsletter, that's probably the best way. Email is probably the best way to get on that newsletter. Yeah. Great. We'll make sure we've got links uh, in the uh, show notes. And again, we say we thank you all for being here immensely. So thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank Thank you, you. Matthew and Carissa. Really appreciate your time and hospitality. Have a beautiful advent. Yeah, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Little Way Farm and Homestead podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about this episode and be sure to tune in next week. 